Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing or that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth lead you not into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came. And he shall take nothing for his toil, that he may carry it away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. Chapter 6. There is an evil that we have seen, or I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, Yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? 
Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives a few days of his life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we'll need your help as we always do. But Lord, I ask that in the middle of a weekend, a transition between one busy week to the next busy week, and with all the things that are on our hearts, the things that are light, the things that are heavy, Lord, would you be God and would you allow us to be quiet, to sit at your feet and to learn? Lord, would you give us what, what we need, even if we didn't know we needed it until we hear it and the Holy Spirit applies it? But Lord, we ask as your body, brothers and sisters in Christ, to teach us and that we learn and that this echo in eternity and we'll consider this time well spent. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, in 2004, uh, about three years into my f first uh, pastorate, the small little church in, in uh, Halifax County in Vernon Hill, Virginia, and about two years into uh, my seminary studies, it was a Friday in December, and I was sitting in the vice president's office at Southeastern. I had just turned in my final exam early because I had to get back home uh, to Virginia for a very important obligation that evening, my wedding rehearsal and the dinner afterward. But while I was sitting there, because I didn't get a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with the vice president who was the professor of the administration and organization of church ministry, that was the class, I said, so you must in your travels and experience have some advice for a fellow who by this time tomorrow will have joined the married force of America. What can you tell me? And he kind of leaned back and he said, it's just one word. Listen. You're laughing. I didn't laugh then. I've laughed many times since. Because it's one of those pieces of advice that grows with you as you mature and find experience and uh, endure uh, years uh, of trying to get out of your own way, not to mention your spouse's way. Um, but what he said was, there's no way I know better than to let your wife know how you feel about her than to listen while she tells you how she feels about anything. Just listen. And if, you, if you're not listening, but you're acting like you're listening, she'll know. And that's worse. <laughs> so get good at it. And he was right. And I've written that down in a number of letters sent to young grooms um, near or after their wedding. But hang on to that idea. Listen. Because that's basically 
the, the point that Solomon, the wisest man in all the world, has for us this morning. But let me tell you what to do with the second half of chapter 5 and chapter 6 that we're not going to spend much time on other than to read through it and to explain its structure right here and now. We could go on for a long time studying the literary devices that this man uses to organize his material. There's all types of technical terms for it, but parallelism is probably the cheapest of those terms. It means that there's something said here, and then it parallels something said here. And then they might match up later as to what was said and form another parallelism. But think of it as little strings on a big board with a lot of sticky notes, and the strings attach the contents of the sticky notes to one another. It's a way of organizing, but it's a way of being artful and poetic as well. All of what we read after we got past verse 7, we've already heard before. That's one thing about that portion uh, that's significant. It's, it's ground that's already been plowed. Now, here's how he regurgitates this plowed ground. He does so by making an outline, A, B, C, D. And then D is his point. And then he reverses the same tactic and walks back out of the same argument, but backward. So if you were putting this on paper, it'd be A, people who cannot be satisfied. Well, he's been talking about that a lot. B, people who cannot enjoy. Well, they can't enjoy because they're not satisfied. And then he adds a point C, well, there is some good things that you should enjoy. And then D, enjoy the moment as a gift from God. And we read over that. It's not the first time he said that either, and it's not the last time he's going to say it. it it's kind of one of the main points of the whole book. But then he backs out of this with the opposite of what is good. He talks about what is bad, and then goes back to B, people cannot enjoy, and then goes back to A, people cannot be satisfied. And if it sounded like we were just running around in circles, especially in chapter 6, that's because we were. Koheleth, the preacher, uh, Solomon, as we think, is repeating himself. Nothing new. Parents use this all the time. We have to repeat things. We sang some of the songs we've sung before in this church. At Christmas, we're going to go over the Christmas story. At Easter, we're going to go over the, Christmas, the Easter story again. So it's not bad, but it's not always the best use of our time when trying to cover a whole book in between the holidays of the summer. So I'm going to leave it at that. And for the inquiring minds that want to know and actually highlight these and find the A, B, C, D, C, B, A, I'd love to see a research paper on it. You'll help me for next time that we do something like this. But what I do want to do is look at the first seven verses of, of chapter 5 because all that's new. He hasn't covered any of this at all. In fact, the mood is different. We wonder if it's the same guy because he's going to actually take a break from bemoaning what is horrible about everything under the sun and actually tells us what is good and what we should do and issues a very helpful warning, though it stings really bad. This is going to be tough for practically all of us in the room, I think. Um, but you'll have to see if the shoe fits by the time we're done. We can put it in the form of a question. Sometimes this is helpful to get us the ball rolling. How many of you like being warned? It depends on what the warning is, right? If uh, 
Sharon Harris should explode. We like those uh, warning towers. Did you hear it last Wednesday? It always happens while we're in staff devotions because it always happens on a Wednesday morning. And it, sometimes it'll happen while we're praying. <laughs> this buzzer starts, not a buzzer, it's more like a big siren. One time it went off while I was down at the beach. And uh, there's also a nuclear plant down there in Southport. I was in a kayak, and it went on for three minutes. I learned then there's a short test and there's a long test. But if you don't know that there's a long one, that's enough time to get worried. I need to get off this water. I don't see a cloud, I don't, whatever else. But uh, that's a good warning. Uh, if you're speeding, you get pulled over, and the guy says, I'm going to let you off with a warning. That's good. But if someone who loves you comes to you delicately and says, you're about to step over a line, and I, I think it right that I help you with a warning, that's good too. But it doesn't feel good, does it? How about the context of worship? That's what we're looking at today. Solomon, the wisest man in all the world, is going to tell us, when you go to the house of God to worship, Pay attention. Guard your steps. Heed this warning. This isn't something new. In fact, early in Israel's history, Moses gives such a warning. Uh, this is familiar to most of us, I would think, in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. All these words I command you shall be in your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you get up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. Write them on the doorpost of your house. Uh, frontlets between your eyes. We're familiar with this. So Moses is warning against the fragmentation of the people of God's worship early in their history. And it boils down to a comprehensive personal level. I mean, he's talking about what they do when they go to bed and when they get up, right? If we're honest, I think we know what he means. And I think if we have any maturity at all as Christians, I think we all too well know what he means. Um, Everything can look great on the outside. As far as anyone else thinks, we're where we're supposed to be, ready to go, have all the talk to back it up. Yet, intimacy with the Almighty to the tune of all my heart, all my mind, all my might, all my soul. Really? More likely than not, if we're honest, I think we would describe that relationship as I feel dry, he feels distant, and I wish I knew what to do about it. And it's even worse when you're involved in ministry professionally and you not only have the answers, but you teach those answers to others and watch it work for them and then wonder why it doesn't work for you. Why the Lord would allow a period descriptive of a desert. It's, it's tough. Um, a vibrant relationship that's not just functional seems out of reach at times, if not often. So what do we do? We get to chapter 5, and the preacher takes a break. As said earlier, 
uh, bemoaning life under the sun to give a profound piece of advice. Listen. That you're listening, an attitude of a listening spirit will tell your God more about your heart than perhaps anything else. This one's a tough one. In actual fact, listening to God is what is said all through Scripture as our main spiritual discipline. And why do we need such advice from such a source? Why do we need a warning? Why is it so hard to listen? Well, because from childhood we're programmed in this culture to be accustomed to uh, touching and seeing and tasting and especially talking. Right? That's how we perceive reality. If I can't get my hands on it or look at it or talk my way through it or taste it, maybe it's not even real at all. But the Bible tells us all that's off. Lean not into your own understandings, right? Um, The first four chapters of this book have taught us that it's a pathetic bunch of vanity. That's not where life is. So... uh, This passage mentions, this is of note, God no fewer than six times. It's totally unprecedented in this book except for here. Uh, He hasn't mentioned God much at all except by passing, and now he's going to mention him six times. Two reasons for this. One is that the passage deals with behavior in God's temple, so it's his place he gets a mention, right? But most important, it's because the whole argument is structured around the preacher's theological statement, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. And if that's something you want to circle and highlight and underline and and draw stars around it, that'd be the the central point of chapter 5. He's counseling the caution necessary to respect the distance between humanity and God. Does that make sense? The fact that he's in heaven and we're on earth has more to do with than just geography. It has to do with he's the creator, we're the creation. He's holy, we're not. Where he doesn't make mistakes, we make lots of them. Whatever he is, we're, we're not. We're, we're the opposite, perhaps. We are made in his image, but we're not God. He's in heaven and we're on earth. So the conviction of God's transcendence is the foundation for the four arguments in the first seven verses, and we'll look at all four of them. I've, I've taken from what we see in our Bibles and, and made uh, what's there into the voice of a directive. You'll see all of it there. But the first is draw near to listen. Guard the steps, your steps, when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they're doing is evil. So there's, there's we could all turn in a, a quiz on this. There's lots of reasons why people would go to church, aren't there? There's tradition. Maybe there's habit. They've always gone. Maybe there's compulsion. They're young. And their parents make them. That's why I went to church for a very long time. Um, because I, I didn't even get to the point of having considered my own <laughs> choice in the matter. That didn't come till way later. I think it's the way it should be. Uh, some come to be heard. Some come to be seen. Some come to be entertained. None of those 
however, speak to the reverence that is being warned about here. The proper form of of reverence. And it was the same in Israel. And that's why we just read from Deuteronomy. By the time the prophets started writing, worship had fallen into a a formality. It it had become rote. Uh, I mean, think about it. If, If you were among the generation that watched a pillar of fire in the sky at night and cloud by day and watched the Red Sea open and gobble up your enemies, it'd be kind of hard to 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 live that down, wouldn't it? You would think, but by the time the generations continue and the prophets are writing, he gives us some examples. God required that the people bring their best animals to be sacrificed, but Malachi tells us they brought offerings as offerings what they could not use themselves, blind, lame, and sick animals. Would you say that's needing of a warning hey don't don't do that you're messing up the whole thing or, or, or this must just not mean anything at all also he mentions that they were quick to make vows to god and they were quick to make promises but they were also quick to retract them later when they realized the implications of their words so these are two of the symptoms that their worship had fallen stale uh should we hazard a modern-day equivalent? If that was then, what's now? What's our problem? Let's wait on that and hear the man out. Maybe we can save ourselves some, some aggravation or, or a, a misconclusion. Back to the verse. Guard your steps when? When you go to the house of the Lord. And to draw near is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So the sacrificing is foolish. It'd be better to just not do that and listen, he's saying. So guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Be careful when you go to the temple. Think about what you're about to do. Because you're not just dropping in on neighbor for conversation. You're not just passing time with a friend. You're going to the place where Almighty God stoops down to meet with you. Growing up in a Christian home, I think I'm probably at danger, if anyone is, as for this just becoming something you do. Uh, if you're in ministry, you get your 10,000 hours early. To think that God actually meets with us here, where two or three are gathered in my name, he's present. That's huge. This isn't like going anywhere else or doing anything else. But it's easy for us to lose track of that um you know (laughs) it's never popular for people to blow whistles and to give warnings and to say hey you better watch what you're supposed to be i mean when who who needs the hall monitor to come in and remind you of all that we all stiffen up at this sort of thing but in this case the man is well justified this isn't this isn't playing games um, Moses knew God pretty well, wouldn't you say? He knew him face to face. Let's take pointers from his relationship to God, other than the time where he got in trouble for not following instruction and missed the promised land as a result of it. Where do we see any casual interaction? between? It started with take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. And then later, they had to put a veil over his head because his face was shining because he'd been close to God, and it was scaring everybody half to death. Um, 
he uses the word fool here to describe the ignorance of those who would bring to God an unacceptable sacrifice, especially things that they couldn't or wouldn't use for themselves. There's another invitation to a rabbit trail. Ever call something a sacrifice that really isn't? Ever make a big deal out of something with your church family that costs you little? Um, I'll just leave that one. If, if, that, if you stumble into that shoe on the way out the door and it fits, you know, like, like uh, you know, the Disney movie, then wear it home. The preacher says they don't even know what they're doing is evil. The point is clear. We should come to God's house first to listen to what God has to say. How many times, we read one of them, did God say to Israel, and every, about everything he gave Moses to say, it started out with, Hear, O Israel. Uh, how many times did Jesus say, before or after he said something, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, Paul would tell us that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God. And James would say, let everyone be quick to listen and slow to speak. Solomon's not got the corner on this market. It's all through the Scriptures. Um, Before this ministry, I served as not a senior pastor, but an associate pastor um, whose job duties kind of rotate and change depending on what's going on. And... There were many Sundays where before I could even get to the office door, there's a person or people waiting. They got a problem. They need to be heard. Maybe it's a good problem. Maybe it's one of those problems that if you fix now, it's not a big problem later, whatever else. But sometimes it's difficult to think that we can't even get to the reason why we're supposed to be here without the other stuff involved. And usually, I'm, I'm along with Solomon here. I don't think people think of it that way. They could be in, you know, headed right through a stop sign. Warning, just flashing. They don't look at it that way. Um, I like the way he put that. They don't even know that what they're, they're doing is irreverent. Number two, let your words be few. So... Draw near to listen. Add to that, let your words be few. That's just what James said, right? Be quick to listen. Well, slow to speak. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth. Any of you use that word this week? Shouldn't have said that rash word. No, I haven't used the word rash. Last time I used it, it had to do with, uh, you know, needing some cream or lotion, Right? But what that means is you shouldn't have said that. It it was not well placed. Nor let your heart be hasty or in a hurry to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Why would Solomon caution us to be restrained in speaking as well as cautioning us to be quick to hear? Because God is in heaven and we are on earth. He gives us his reason. It's basically a nice way of saying, who do you think you are? Would you spout off like that if it was some human king or queen? I know there are people that if they bumped into the president, they might give him a piece of their mind, but most of us would have better sense than to do that. 
But when it comes to spiritual matters, we act as if it's different. And it's not. It's worse. God is infinitely greater than any human king or king. And we show our reverence by being people of few words when it comes to speaking about God or even to God publicly. Listen to this. It's familiar. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Who said that? Jesus. He also said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. You don't have to get fancy. And getting fancy for other people to hear might be an insult to the one you're actually speaking to. Not only that, uh, he would continue by saying, pray this way, our Father which art in heaven. Isn't that crazy? That built into the Lord's prayers the same thing Solomon said, a reminder that he's in heaven and we're on earth. He's not like us. He's God, we're not. So when you are praying... Pray like Jesus tells us. And then this business about dreams. Does anybody else ever dream about stuff they're worried or anxious about? Or maybe it's not a bad thing. It's something you're obsessed over. Um, I think that tends to happen. But it's always a little weird too, isn't it? It's not exactly like it should be. You're in a house where there's rooms like from your place, but there's room from somebody else's place. You know it's bad when... You're walking through your house in a dream and there's like church rooms in it. Maybe only preachers dream weird dreams like that. I don't know. But there was one time where I swore off of Axis and Allies. You know, the game, the board game with uh, lots of little tanks and airplanes and uh, infantry. And you got this whole chart how you earn GDP, enlist uh, soldiers pour it into research and development, and then blow up the bad guys, right? Unless you're the bad guys, you're blowing up the good guys. It was so involved that I'd dream about it all night. And then come Sunday morning, I'd, I'd be like, I'm in a mess. I've got Axis and Allies on the brain, and I've got to teach Philippians whatever. It happens that way. What he's trying to say is that one thing naturally leads to another. If you're worried about something, you'll dream about it just like a foolish person is going to run their mouth. I didn't say it that way. Solomon said that way. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. So Jesus is is correct when he says, hey, um, let your prayer be words that are few. So just like you draw near to listen rather than making a foolish sacrifice... Let your words be few, unlike the foolish who have too many. All right, number three. Fulfill what you vow. The heat is turned up with this fourth and fifth verse. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. He's talking a lot about fools here, isn't he? Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So he's saying uh, as much that what else would be foolish than promising God something and then not delivering on your promise or acting like you've both forgotten about it. Uh, This is from Deuteronomy. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. 
It's kind of a veiled way of saying uh, better not to vow than to vow and to break it. So um, it would it'd be worth the moment or two to mention that these vows that we're reading about here in Ecclesiastes and also in Deuteronomy and typical of what we see in the Old Testament usually were conditional agreements. Uh, someone wants something from God and they are in turn going to do something for God as a result of his answering that request. Think about Hannah, who wanted a child, and she begged the Lord for a child. She begged him so fervently that the priest thought she was drunk. And she promised, I'll give him back to serve in the temple under the Nazarite vow. God gave her the child, name was Samuel, and she did exactly that. There's other places in Scripture where it doesn't work quite like that way. Um, Ananias and Sapphira are probably the best example of how if you promise and it involves a lie and you don't keep it, you you might not survive the process. Uh, There's Jephthah, the judges. He asked the Lord for the victory, and he said, whatever comes out of my door first, I'll, I'll sacrifice that to you. He gets home and his daughter runs out the front door. And we don't even know what he's describing happens to her. Was she sacrificed? Wasn't she? It's it's difficult to say. He was in a mess. He should not have vowed rather than get himself in a position where he can't pay it. And one commentator was talking about how we in our uh, literature and songs and whatever else talk about making deals with the devil and not paying them, right? like making a deal with the devil who went down to Georgia or whatever, however it goes. We joke about that and we think about it and there's movies and stories that seem to be horrible endings. Wouldn't it be worse to act as if it's any less of a serious thing to make a deal with the Lord and not to pay it? At the same time, don't put him in the light of a harsh taskmaster that will loan us something at exorbitant interest rates and he's just out to to entrap us. Think about the relationship between a father and a son. I need your help. Well, I need your help too. That might get you a little closer. But he's talking a lot about fools and as as far as is how this New Testament, Old Testament, hear from Jesus himself. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Jesus is saying, you all know this. But then he's about to switch it. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black until just for men. I got in trouble last week for talking about hair coloring. It grows back. That's the Lord's vengeance. You know, he knows who we are and everyone shall soon see. But what does he say in the end? Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So a no rash word policy as far as, as Jesus goes. 
But again, a lot of Ecclesiastes involves uh, qualifications, right? You say something and then you got to go, well, it means that, but then it might not mean that over here. So make sure nobody gets bent out of shape. We make a lot of vows in church, don't we? There's a certain tune that always sounds most of the time. And a woman will walk down this aisle and a young man is standing here. And there's a a father to give away the bride usually. And uh, we're going to swear in front of God and everybody till death do us part. Right? That's good. And for some decisions, that type of sobriety and seriousness is justified and needed. Uh, When we baptize in this pool, they'll read their confession. Now hold me to it. Uh, When we dedicate our children, we promise to teach them to live by the book. Uh, When we ordain someone to the gospel ministry, there's a charge to the church. There's a charge to the candidate. And usually a Bible is given. You have nothing to say other than what's already here. Right? So all that is well and it's good and it's well placed. I think we're hearing the dimensions of the tabernacle. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> At any rate. Um, let me add. Let me add one more to that list of, uh, you know, just trying to take all this out of the wasness and put it into the isness. Over the course of one's life as a Christian and their involvement in ministries, not all positions in service last one's lifetime. Though a lot of the times the giftedness that God will give us lasts a lifetime. Maybe those gifts could be seen before he saved us. Maybe they came into their own after he saved us. Maybe through certain transition periods in our own life, those gifts change or our perspective on those gifts allows us to use them in different ways. Let's say that someone, going back to an awful thing that was said by Solomon about a miscarriage, Some would never want to be good at counseling someone else who's suffering through the pain of a miscarriage. But God uses such events to minister to one another, right? All of this I'm saying is that at certain times we get into what we do that has an impact with others. And at times we come out of what we've done. There's a season for it, a beginning and an ending. And if we're learning anything here from first being ready to listen and being slow to speak and being very careful to vow and making sure we don't ever get ourselves in a position where we vow and then we don't pay it, would that have anything to say to a church and a body who spend time together for the business of the Great Commission, but in all sorts of ways and under certain programs in a church like, say, music ministry and children's ministry and men's ministry and women's ministry and outreach ministry and missions program and on and on and on and on. We have Sunday school classes that require teaching, children's ministry that require teaching and extra sets of hands. You, you name it, 
it's probably part of a church somewhere. I'm struggling with something at, in, in this new world since COVID, as I'm sure some of you are. And your things you struggle with may be totally different than mine. It changed a lot of things down to just the way people think and not even know that they're thinking different before. I, I'm going to say, not going to say COVID's dead, but for all intents and purposes, we're almost back the way we were before as far as the way life was, but we're different as a result. And one thing in the church, and it's not just this one, it's in churches all over, including pastors in this area. I meet with them often because sometimes I need some help myself. But volunteership is not where it was before COVID, now that COVID, for the most part, is over. There's a smaller pool of people and hours those people have available to do what was done before it all happened. And in some ways it might look tiny, in other ways it's gaping. There's some churches that have dropped entire ministries because they can't put together the people necessary to make it happen and do it well. There's other ministries that may be here that wasn't before because there's a need and now people are rallied around that need. It's great. There was once upon a time, a time when bus ministry worked wonderfully and then a time when it didn't. And amazingly enough, it's starting to work again. So sometimes what comes around goes around. But what I'm saying is this. If there's a time where we start in an official capacity, so to say, using our gift within a family of God. And then there comes a time where we don't use the gift anymore. The question is, should that be God's business or our business? And certainly it shouldn't be God's business on the front end and our business on the back end. That if we're going to say, Lord... you know what happened? I was approached. Um, I know you made me to like doing this. And I, I, I've seen and heard from other people that you've actually allowed me to do it well. And I want your spirit to tell me whether or not I should tell so-and-so that I'm good for whatever it is. Now, when that's over, is it the same process? Lord, you got me into this. Am I okay to come out of it? Do I have a release You gave me the gift. It's your great commission that it's involved in. Just because my life changed or this changed or that changed or my kid graduated or I don't like it anymore, is it okay? I would think that a passage like this would speak to something like that. Worst decision I ever had to make in my whole life was decide whether or not to leave Danville and come to Fuquay. But I had to look at it not as can I shift lanes, but rather do I have release from where you've put me? And am I technically being, uh, what do they call that in, in military? Reassigned. At the end of the day, he's not going to write it in the clouds. You're going to have to use others and scripture to help you with this. All I'm saying is this is serious business. It's, it, it's absolutely worthy of a cautionary warning. What are we doing? Who do we think we are? Is God still in heaven? Or are we still on earth? Is God still in the business of changing lives? How is he going to use our gifts to get that done? 
I mean, we're Christians, aren't we? We can't do nothing. We have to do something. But how do we do that something? And who do we do that something with? And how does God bless it? And do we feel his pleasure? And do we keep on when it doesn't feel right because we don't have a release? Or do we just hop over and do something else? Or, God forbid, should we load down our schedules and cram them so tight that we're everywhere doing everything But the one thing that's getting the short end of the stick is the very thing that God means for us to be fed by and find meaning and enjoyment in life. If you don't think that you're capable of eating all the dessert and leaving your vegetables, then that's all of us, isn't it? You've seen the coffee mug, eat the life short, eat the dessert first, right? And in America, we got big desserts. Don't waste your life. Spend it all on the glory of God. Uh, But then again, there's another thing. He gave you a family. I think that comes before your church. Don't think that the ministry isn't tempting enough to save the world and lose your family either. This isn't simple. This is why the best posture on a weekly basis is to come into this room, sit down, determine to listen, and let God show you what to do. Because if we don't do it any other way, well, let me see what I can do with this. We'll probably heap it up at the end, go, I expected more, and then it's over. Or we can listen, allow God to be God while we be quiet. And maybe even through tears, I could never have expected as much as this. But that's only you, that's not me. There's one more point. It's a short one. Worship with reverence. He says, concluding in verse 7, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. You know, dreams and words. That's why I never liked that word vision. That's kind of like dreams. You know, there's a bunch of guys at Southeastern when I was at school talking about, you know, I got this vision for this church and this vision for this church. And I wonder if they just thought, no, you've got an opinion, but when you graduate... You're going to stamp your opinion with, with, with uh, you know, the Great Commission and then impose that on some poor church who probably doesn't think that way. Anyway, he says this, it's all vanity. Dreams and increasing, visions, words, growing. But God is the one you must fear. And what does this same fellow say right in the opening to his book called Proverbs? What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of God. It's the beginning of wisdom. So in summary, reverence for God will cause us to guard our steps when we go to the house of God. Reverence for God will cause us to draw near and listen rather than pontificate. Reverence for God will cause us not to be rash with our mouth. Reverence for God will cause us not to defy or delay fulfilling any agreement we've made with God. Reverence for God will cause us not to have lame excuses for not fulfilling our obligations or when God's obligations for us become something else altogether. In short, reverence for God will make our worship worthy. And reverence for God will prompt us to listen and be still. In fact, that's the song we're going to sing. Be still. And know that I'm God.
Know that the waves and the winds still obey his command and so forth. It's scary when you're not in charge, isn't it? When you're not calling the shots. It's hard to sit down and listen and let someone else direct those steps. Interesting, he uses steps as the first thing. What is it that points your direction? If you look down, do your feet point anywhere other than the direction you're going? No. Where you're going is where you'll wind up. My father used to say that so many times. Where will you be when you get where you're going? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? So it's good to sit down for a spell and to listen. Let me pray, and then we'll sing. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, forgiving us through the mouth of a wise man things that we naturally want to discount or hand to someone else in the form of a CD or MP3. Hey, listen to this. Lord, we need to hear it ourselves. We need to listen. Lord, would you be God and may we be quiet. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.